Thank you, Casey. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to John chapter 6 as we continue to walk through this glorious gospel in God's Word. Today we come to one of the, probably the most famous passages, maybe the most famous miracle in all the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000. So a good thing to talk about before lunch. And so I hope you'll hang with me, dear Baptists. And we'll get through this, but uh, I'm going to look at verses 1 to 15 and also 22 to 51. And I'm only going to read the first 15 verses and we'll kind of deal with the second part. That's going to be most of a sermon of uh, the application of, of, uh, of the bread, who, who Jesus is. Uh, but we'll read that in due course. So let us hear now the word of the Lord as inspired by his spirit. John 6, beginning verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that they had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is God's inspired, inerrant word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege. I thank you for the privilege of proclaiming your word. Thank you for the privilege of hearing your word. Lord, we're glad that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins that sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Lord, I thank you that we've come to that fountain here in this text today. Give us grace and eyes to see great things from your word. Form your kingdom in us. Build your church in us and through us so the gates of hell might not overcome it. And give us grace to live every moment for your glory. And for me, those who do not know you, today begin a work in their heart of drawing them, convicting them of sin. Give them grace to see that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And all who feast upon him will have eternal life. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. His name, risen Lord. Amen. Well, if you've grown up as a Southern Baptist, and some of you have, not all of you have, but if you've grown up in church, especially in the deep south, you know that food to Southern Baptists is a big deal. If you've eaten one of our fellowship meals here, 
you know that food is a big deal. We take a good deal of pride in having enough food. In fact, the big scandal is running out of food, right, and not having enough food. We take this with the utmost seriousness. In fact, growing up, if you wanted to draw a crowd to church, you would have a, maybe a homecoming or something like that and dinner on the grounds. And when I pass one of those churches sometimes and I'm, you know, down in Georgia or something, I just want to stop and eat the fried chicken and all that stuff and see it's just making me hungry now. It's just, even thinking about it right now makes me want to run out and go to one of those, uh, one of those dinners on the ground. I love that. And we love it here. But unfortunately, many of us go to church when we have such dinners on the ground for the food. We just go because we can have our stomachs filled, right? Well, Jesus encountered, this is nothing new to Jesus here. So we kind of have the largest dinner on the ground in all of Scripture here, right? Where the people are there, Jesus accuses them just for the food. In fact, food is a significant theme in the Bible, if you think about it. That's why I think our, our uh, quarterly lunches are deeply biblical, <laughs> right? Because uh, food is a major theme in the Bible. I mean, plenty of food in the Bible is a sign of God's blessing. Proverbs 10, there 3.10 says, Then your barns will be filled with plenty. What's in your barns? Well, not just hay, but food, corn, and things like that, right? And your vats will be bursting with wine. By the same token, of course, a lack of food is a sign of God's judgment. You think of the latter chapters of Exodus and the story of Joseph. What happened? Well, in the story of Joseph, there were seven years of plenty, plenty of food, followed by seven years of famine. So God maneuvers and manipulates the food for blessing or judgment. So this is the biblical truth I want us to keep in mind as we look at uh, is easily one of the best-known miracles in all the Bible. You hear, you know, Hollywood even quote this, the feeding of the 5,000. You'll hear it quoted sometimes, usually out of context. But I want to argue it's one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted and mispreached mis, uh, uh, texts in, in, in all of John's gospel. Now, the context, Jesus has been ministering in Jerusalem. We switch, change gears here a little bit. Um, he leaves and travels uh, to uh, the, the, the far side of Galilee, Around, it's now around the time of the Passover. And chapter 6 kind of represents a major turning point in the narrative. And chapter 6 was a very important verse or, or a passage for me, a chapter uh, in my theological pilgrimage a long time ago. There's a lot of stuff in here, not just today, but in, in weeks to come. And so it's very, very rich, but it's a major turning point. Because chapter 6 to 12 is going to reveal the identity of Jesus as the one sent by the Father. He said, That's the Father sent me to do his work, and we're going to see that. And then he kind of pivot in chapter 13 to the, uh, where the, he, there's the great foot washing. Jesus, they wash his feet, and then he's going to the cross. The last week of Jesus' life, taking up the rest of the Gospel of John. So here's a, a major section, and we begin it today. And so we see the miracle. And as you see here, I'm going to say Jesus feeds not just the 5,000, Jesus feeds the 20,000. A lot more than 5,000 here. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the miracle. Usually you'll get a sermon, it's a lot of time on the miracle. We'll spend a lot more time on the meaning of the miracle because I think that's the point. So they're busy doing ministry. They've been doing ministry all the way up to now. And Jesus and the disciples had not taken time to eat. You know, they're, I'm sure they're starving to death. Ministry makes you hungry. Say worship makes you hungry too, right? Especially this time of day. So Jesus calls them away to a place to rest. And they went away in a boat, but the crowds followed them. Jesus has gained quite a following here. 
the crowd is 5,000 men besides women and children. So you probably, uh, scholars sort of extrapolate this out to be about 20,000, which makes the miracle even greater. Maybe 15,000, 20,000, something in that neighborhood. And so Jesus says, let's have them sit down and feed them. And you can imagine this disciples' confusion here. You want us to feed, wait a minute, you want us to feed them. And of course, there's not a, you know, there's not a Chick-fil-A anywhere by here. And imagine 20,000 Chick-fil-A anyway. Uh, or you know, there's nothing like that in this day, of course. Ridiculous to even suggest that. And so Jesus said, we're going to feed them all. Really? Well, what do we have here? How much food do we have? Because they have a supply problem. Right? There's great demand, but no supply. And there's no food, at least not that they can discern. They said, yeah, there's a little boy. I saw him out there. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. But, I mean, how much is that for so many people, 20,000 people, two fish? You know, I don't even like fish. <laughs> and five barley loaves, I can eat the bread, not the fish. But that's not much kind of, kind of skimpy, not going to feed many people. Maybe the little boy, it's probably his lunch. And so they say, well, it, we would need 200 denarii to feed this crowd. A denarii was the equivalent of a day's wages. So like 200 days of a worker's wages to feed this massive crowd. If they're Baptists, you know, they're going to come back for seconds, right? So maybe even more than that. So you're going to need a lot of food. They're telling Jesus, this is impossible. And Jesus said, have them sit down. And we learn in Mark's gospel, this is one of the miracles found in all four gospels, by the way, one of, the, one of, the, one of several. But in Mark's gospel, it tells us that Jesus had them seated in the 50s and the 100s, had them organized, very organized, kind of like the 12 tribes of Israel, and they would move out, very well organized. You read those passages and you read through the Bible and bog down because, you know, that seems boring. But I think it's really neat how they, you know, they moved out in, in uh, sort of in tandem and very well organized. Jesus was not disorganized at all. And so they get the... The fish and the, the barley loaves, and we're not told anything about the little boy. I've heard this preached as a parable on sharing. The whole thing's about sharing, but we don't know. The little boy, they might have had to, you know, just wrench the little things out of his idolatrous little hands. We don't know what happened, you know. He may have given it freely. We don't know. So we don't, we don't preach that. I don't think it's about sharing. So Jesus took it. He prayed. Prayed to the Father. Where do we, why do we bless the food? Well, we have it here. He prayed, right? He prayed, thank you, gave thanks for the food, no doubt. Broke it and distributed it. And what happened? Well, these Baptists, they ate. And they ate well, evidently, if we take the text seriously. And we certainly do. So, so God blesses it. Jesus blesses it. He, Jesus is God. He hands it out. And there's, there's, there's plenty. There's even some, plenty left over. Now, there's some that say this is the, the Lord's Supper. That's ridiculous. Why is that ridiculous? It's not a trick question. You should know. Why, why is it ridiculous? Because if they had mentioned the Lord's Supper, you'd say, what's he talking about? It hasn't happened yet, right? He's not come to that. There are scholars who say that. I don't agree with that. So it's not the Lord's Supper, not a picture of the Lord's Supper. Maybe a picture, but not maybe the communitarian aspect. But they all ate. And they were satisfied. They filled. Their hunger was, was satiated. I mean, Jesus, Jesus fed them. And not only that, there were 12 baskets left over. Jesus said, let's take it all so that nothing will be wasted. Wow, love the detail here. And there's, there's meaning in the detail. We're going to get to that. So what happened here? Was this really a miracle? Come on, there's got to be a, 
a more naturalistic explanation, right? I mean, there's some scholars that think so. There are some scholars, I just had to, had to uh, amuse myself at looking at a couple of, of uh, liberal scholars from the days when I was a PhD student. We had to buy those so we could learn to refute, or read those to learn to refute them, right? It's good scholarship. But there's one that suggested that Jesus had a cave. This is the most creative one, I think. That Jesus had a cave near the Sea of Galilee. It was filled with a massive number of fish and a massive supply of bread. Can you imagine? Imagine the smell of all those fish. <laughs> you know, uh, I guess they were cooked fish. I don't know. And uh, Jesus had a, a flowing robe with loose sleeves, and he's kind of like a magician, kind of like a magic show. They passed them through. The disciples passed them through, and they had this kind of a kind of like a bucket brigade, and they passed out the fish and the loaves. Now, that gets an A for creativity, right? I, really, I was greatly amused by that. I was sort of glad that my quest for liberal scholarship had been answered. I was, uh, is that what's going on here? No, that's not what's going on here. Again, a for, an A for creativity and an F for, um, for, for hermeneutics or interpretation. Some of the people, uh, they said, well, some of the people, others said some of the people brought, brought loaves and fish enough to share. And Jesus commanded them to share, and they did, and so that's what you have. But, uh, of course, I don't think that's it. This was a miracle. I mean, Jesus created something, right? He created food. And this is nothing to God, right? He, and, of course, part of this is to prove that he is what? He's been accused of being God. He's going to show them. Well, look at this. You want to see something cool? Here it is. I'm God. I mean, only God could do that. So he created something. He spoke this into being, obviously. It was a miracle. And we're just going to assume that this morning. I think you all agree with that. We're going to assume that. So, so that's the miracle. What does it mean? Well, that's the, I think that's, I mean, Jesus did this. Everything he did was, of course, with a purpose, an intent. And so what is the meaning of it? It has an important meaning. Well, it means, just to summarize, and we're going to, we're going to unpack this, but that Jesus is the bread of life. I mean, that's, that's really the simple point. We see this in verses tw uh, 22 to 51. Again, we'll read some of this in due, in due course. And I want to get at it this way. And there's a lot more. We could, we could spend weeks on this. We're not going to do that. So what does it mean? Well, it tells us at least three things about man and three things about God. So that's three things about fallen man or uh, we might say it exposes at least three things about sinful man and three things about God that, that go alongside that. Tell us about Jesus, who he is, who he, why he came. But the first thing it tells us about man is this. Fallen man is not led to faith in God by witnessing miracles. Now, there have been times in my life and probably times in your life, if we're honest, we wish he'd just do a miracle. Maybe we're confused about God's will or we're confused about the future, confused about the present. We say, just come down. And my, Lisa and I have laughed about this before. I almost said, just tell us. <laughs> just speak from up there and say, this is my son and who will please. Or say something like, go here and do this. Yes. Ooh, that'd make me feel a lot better. So we do. We, 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 even the best of us, we, the most solid theologically, we can crave this, can't we? This really doesn't do anybody any good, and the, the, this text tells us this. We're not led by faith in God, by miracles in Jesus. Because only those whose hearts have been so supernaturally transformed by the Spirit come to Christ. We'll see verses uh, 27, 44, and 63. Just kind of jump through this a minute here. Verse 27. Jesus said, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food <clears throat> that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. 
For on him God the Father has set his seal. So it's the food that is eternal life and the Father will give you, he says. So you, you labor for that. Verse 44. These were very important verses in my theological pilgrimage. These are very personal to me. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. So no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent him draws him. This is why I pray every Sunday when I pray for those who are lost, I pray, Father, draw them to your Son. Open their eyes, unstop their deaf ears, do a work in them you alone can do. If you're here and you're saved, it's because God did this in you. You didn't do anything for him. You added nothing to it. You could never save yourself. He opened your blind eyes. He unstopped your deaf ears. He said, come. He said, he looked into your, your dark, depraved heart and said, let there be light. And there was light. And you came. You came. You did nothing to get it. That's why I always say you can do nothing to lose it. <laughs> That's another sermon for another time, but no man can come unless the Father sent me draws him. Now, verse 63. You know, kind of, I guess we're going to kind of survey. That's a good way to put it, this second section here, the meaning. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. These, the words, which is, by the way, how we preach, the words that I have spoken to you, we preach the Word of Christ, right, are spirit little s, and life. So the Word is life-giving. That's why we are a Word-centered church, the Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so Jesus must give us life. God the Father must draw us. He must, the Spirit of God must give life. So salvation is the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see that. And all, all three persons of the Trinity are at work in your salvation. So it's, your experience of salvation is Trinitarian. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit spoke into your dead heart and said, let there be life. Let there be light and there was life. Because man is imprisoned by spiritual ignorance. John 6, 30, 31, back in verse 30, 31. They said, what sign will you give then that we might see it and believe? So you, what sign? They've just seen a sign. It's like, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> what sign? Are you kidding me? What sign will you give that we might see it and believe? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. And listen to, see the irony here? One of those ironies in John. Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus, verse 36, he said, you have seen me and yet you still don't believe. I've done this miracle and guess what? You've seen me, the Son of God, and you don't believe. Why? Well, the hardness of their hearts. But also it's because God has not spoken in the hearts and said, let there be light. Hmm. You think of the rich man in Lazarus, parable. He said, go, go and tell my brothers, tell them to repent. And what does he say? Jesus said, even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't repent and believe. Miracles, I mean, God could do, you know, go out there and raise the dead. And what did he do? He really did raise the dead, raise his son, and they won't believe. Unless God works in their hearts. So this should promote humility in us that we have not done anything to gain this. It's like that's why I lead off with that in my, you know, when I do welcome on Sunday morning, just to remind us that you know, there's a lot going on in our lives, our church, and things like that. But we are saved. We are privileged to have God, the sovereign creator of the universe, work in our hearts and to redeem us. His son died for us. He is the bread of life we have eaten and we have been filled and we have eternal life. And we better never, ever despise that or forget that.
But believing requires the sovereign work of God. Verse 63, but the Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. You can't say, well, I'm glad I worked with you to save myself. There are theologies that tacitly communicate that. Frankly, it's why I'm just going to say it. It's why I'm not an Arminian. I'm not an Arminian because we work together. No, we work together in sanctification. I think Arminianism collapses sanctification and salvation, soteriology together. Collapse them in on each other, kind of like Roman Catholicism. But we did nothing to get it. No, nothing at all. The flesh profits nothing. So fallen man has, is not led to faith by witnessing miracles. And there's a whole denomination. They're built on miracles. I, I don't think it's doing anybody any good. And I've, I've been among those people. And I, I love, they, they've, they've reminded, they've done a lot of good things for Southern Baptists. Reminded us of the presence and the, the priority of the Holy Spirit. And love that. But, boy, the miracles... I've got friends I've asked, so how'd church go today? Man, we saw miracles today. We witnessed this big thing happen in church. Wow. And if you've got to have that, that can get old, can it? See, it doesn't do anybody any good. It's, just, it's the ordinary, and this is the hard sell sometimes. The ordinary means of grace, just the preaching of the word and prayer and evangelism and serving one another, the one another's. That's how God grows us, right? I mean, sometimes I wish you'd just hit me with a lightning bolt, but that's not what happens, and that's not what happens here or anywhere else in Scripture. There are a lot of miracles, and I believe every one of them, but they don't lead to salvation. So fallen man is not led to faith in God by witness miracles. Secondly, fallen man, the second thing he tells us about man, fallen man has a, or tends to focus on felt needs rather than on God, rather than on spiritual needs. We tend to really focus on that, and we all do it. On felt needs, I mean just the here and the now. Needs, practical needs in the here and the now. Verses 26 and 27. Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Why? Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You had a good lunch. You went to the dinner on the grounds, and man, that fried chicken was super. It was tremendous. And now you're following me. You want more food. But he says, do not work for the food that perishes, because you're going to have to eat again, like tonight. But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So labor for that. But we tend to focus on felt needs, don't we? Instead of the true needs of our hearts, which is transformation. And again, that's why we're here every Sunday. Transformation. That's why you need the church. That's why the church is a means of grace. It's an ordinary means of grace. It's not spectacular. No, but it is what we need. It meets our spiritual needs. It nourishes us. I mean, we nourish, we're nourished as we hear the preaching of the word, as we sing, there is a fountain filled with blood and a mighty fortress is our God. And all these things we're reminded of the truths of Scripture. Insofar as the church is faithful to the Bible, we need that church. We need the local church. But we focus on felt needs. And this is especially true in our day in American Christianity. Many people, they really just want a genie. You know, think of Aladdin, think of a lamp. They just want a genie, right? That's what they want. Who can supply their felt needs. Not the true God who can transform their sinful hearts. Sinful man is fickle, and that includes us sometimes. We're way too fickle. Sinful man lacks faith. This is why unilateral work of grace is needed to give birth to faith in a sinful heart. It's tragic, tragically possible. 
to focus on ourselves rather than on Jesus. We come to church and we sing about ourselves. We sing about Jesus as if he's our girlfriend or boyfriend. That's why hymn duty is so, it's so important to think about those words and to pay attention to what we're singing. I mean, there's songs out there that just don't not to be sung <laughs> in church, right? Because they sing about Jesus. You can sing it about your wife. You can sing it about your husband. You can sing it about your, you know, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. We focus on ourselves. We sing about ourselves. We are obsessed with ourselves. We're individualists. We need to be rescued from ourselves. We see that in this text. I mean, one of the major steps in achieving good spiritual health is getting your mind off yourself entirely and on the Lord instead. You want a, want a diagnosis for help your mental health? Well, get your mind off yourself. You focus too much on yourself. I hear this all the time. My, I just got to get my mental health straight. Focus on Jesus. Focus on serving your neighbor. Your mental health will be just fine if you do that. I promise. And I hear this all the time among Christians. I just got to work on myself, get myself better. You're not going to make yourself better. Until your focus is on Christ, on loving God and loving your neighbor. When it's on you, boy, you're going to be a mess. You're going to be a hot mess. And it's no wonder, no wonder we have such problems among our young people. <laughs> They're just told it's all about you. I saw a magazine in the store there, you. That's just the name of it, you. <laughs> Man, it's pretty bold. You, I'm sure that flies off the shelves. We still read magazines anymore. But here in this incident, Jesus points out that they had their minds on material things. I mean, the point of the miracle was to point them to Jesus, to put their minds on Jesus. That's who we need. We need Jesus. I don't need too much Jeff. I need all of Jesus in all of me. He had fed them. But we see from the miracle that he was the spiritual bread who alone could satisfy the inner spiritual hungers to satisfy their true, their authentic, their genuine needs. But they've missed out on the greater blessing. And so many church people do the same. Do we do that? Do we treat God as if he were some kind of celestial ATM? God gives us many wonderful gifts to enjoy. I've got two. I mean, it's like the other day someone's going to give me a free book in one of our seminary events. I don't need it. I think I need another book. I mean, because, and I love books, but I've got just like 12,000 of them. I said, give that to a poor student who needs, doesn't have 12,000 books. That's just books, right? And sometimes I think about how I don't really have a lot. And the next breath I think, yes, I do. I have a phone. I can ask and it can tell me anything. What number am I thinking of right now? Siri probably tell me. Small mind like mine? Probably so. And God gives us these gifts to enjoy. But as A.W. Tozer put it, they can be a potential source of ruin for the soul. Because we become fixated on them. We become fixated on ourselves. We fill our minds with things and only come to God when our things are threatened to be taken away or when we want more things. I mean, think about our prayers. How often, I mean, I think about my own prayers, how often they focus on things and the threat to those things. The question we must continually ask ourselves instead is, do my things have me or do I have them? You see the difference? I mean... What happened when he began to say things like, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood? He says this, look at verse, uh, verses 60, 66. They said, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, 
This is the hard teaching. Who can accept it? From this time, many of his disciples did what? They turned back and they no longer followed him. They went out from us because they were never one of us. They heard the hard sayings and they said, I can't handle this man. This is heavy. And they turned back from Jesus. They were not true disciples. They were false disciples. How do I know this? Well, back in verse 34. After Jesus claimed to be the bread of life, they said, Sir, give us this bread always. They were eager. Well, they thought it was just bread. Give me some dough. Give me some bread, right? But he said, No, I am the bread of, I am the bread of life. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they said, Man, this is, uh uh-uh, uh, I think so. And they followed him no longer. After just a few minutes, they said, We want this bread big time, always. We love a God who is willing to meet all of our felt needs, but Jesus demands our life, our soul, our all. Are you all in with Jesus? Christ's fellowship? There's a cost to discipleship, isn't there? I mean, many are not willing to go that far. They just want a little Jesus, just, just to use him. But Jesus said, what? If any man comes after me, let him, when you know the Bible, Deny himself. Take up his cross, your cross to carry, and follow me. In Luke 14, very soberingly, uh, there's a, a passage there I've been thinking about for 20 years. If you hate not your father, mother, brother, sister, wife, and children, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And he goes on to name earthly things about counting the cost. If you don't do this, you cannot. You have the not, you lack the ability to be my disciples. Jesus will not count as any rivals for our hearts. And you see that here. They don't really, they just want a little Jesus. They want a little bread. They don't want the bread of life. Thirdly, the third thing it tells us about man is fallen man naturally works hard after righteousness. They said, what do we have to do? Just give us like nine things we got to do here, or three things, or two things. What do we have to do to do the works of God? Verse, six, verse 28. I mean, essentially the crowd is telling him, they said, tell me the works of God required, I'll do it. I'll do my thing, I'll do my business with you, God, and I'll move on. And I'll have this salvation, eternal life, and then I'll have everything else. And Jesus said, it didn't work that way. Verse 29, he says, the work of God is this. It's what? It's not do, do seven Hail Marys. Just do penance? No. Uh Uh-uh. To believe the works of God you must do, to believe in the one whom he has sent. Of course, they're scandalized by this. He's claiming to be God. Here he is again, pressing this God thing. But they're good expressive individualists. No, 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 they'll have none of it. But that's our tendency too, right? We want to do what we want to do. I hear this all the time. They say, what? What, 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 what do you have to do to go to heaven? Say, well, you know, my good works outweigh my bad works. I'm a really good person. And I hear this almost every time I share the gospel with somebody in this culture. See, we're can-do people. It's sort of the Puritan work ethic, which is a good thing. Run amok. Not a good thing. We can do it. We can do it. My good ways outdoes my bad. Or I'm, I'm a very good person. They'll start off with that and say, boy, you're down. <laughs> That's the wrong road right off the bat. Got to get the doctrine of man right. And we see it in here, writ large in this text. Faith is impossible with man. 
Verse 29, again, the work of God is to believe in me whom he has sent. And we know, don't we? We know now from this text that we can't come unless he draws us, unless the Spirit does the work in our hearts. But our tendency is to want to work our way to heaven. And that's the essence of all the false religions, the Jehovah's Witnesses that come to your door and my door on Saturdays, peddling their little pamphlets. The Mormons, they just want to be able to do it. I can do it. I've done this. And they can check the box. But again, we, we, that's why the Pharisees come in for so much ink, I think, that we can do the same if we're not careful. So those are three things about, this tells us about man. Three things it tells us about God, that, that this passage tells us about God, the meaning of the passage. Jesus, who is God, is a compassionate shepherd, one who meets the needs of his people. They were sheep without a shepherd. 34 tells us. And Mark tells us that Jesus was moved by compassion. He had compassion. He loved them, all of them. And the Greek word translated compassion here is only, uh, only used in this place here to describe Jesus in all, all the New Testament, right here. R.C. Sproul said this was a compassion that reached a level that was far deeper than human concern and empathy for people in pain. Bottom line, God will supply our needs. The Old Testament prophets promised a Messiah who would be a shepherd king, the good shepherd, who would lay down his life for the sheep. And that's who, where we've come to, right here. Jesus is going to say this later. In compassion, the shepherd here looks upon the sheep. His sheep, he's moved with a deep, deep compassion to meet their need. And if you're here this morning, he's met your deepest need. If you're here and you're saved, you're in Christ, he's met your deepest need. I mean, how many times... And he'll meet all of our other needs too. I think that's what the bread of life, part of that is he'll meet our needs, our needs. I mean, how many times have some of you been down to nothing? Some of you are students. You've been down to nothing. I've been a student. We were always down to nothing, you know. I was a poor seminary student. And some of you, I, I know your testimonies. I know some of you have been down to nothing. Boy, it's been. But you didn't run out, did you? You didn't. I'm looking at you right now. You look like you had a good breakfast this morning. We all ate this morning probably or you skipped it on purpose. God is good to us, isn't he? He'll supply our needs. I've been, we, we've been, we've been places before times we thought, oh boy, this is going to get real interesting. I left a ministry position one time with nothing. No job. Four kids. One wife. It was scary. And you can tell by looking at me, man, that, <laughs> you didn't go along without any food, did you? No, no, not one meal, not one time. Can I attribute that to something in myself, my education or whatever? No. I look back in God's providence and see how he just puts it all together. Every bit of it, every day. I didn't miss a meal. I, I could have stood to miss a meal. I'm actually trying to lose weight right now. You need to pray for me. Man, I'm getting at that age. But really... No, God, God supplies our needs. We, I was, we were down, we felt like nothing, but God always came through, always, every single time. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. The sovereign creator made the world and everything in it, the universe and everything in it. At least 100 billion galaxies. And the Hubble Space Telescope expects to discover, I've read, at least 100 million more in years to come. He made them all. And do you think he's going to forget about you? He sent his son to die for you. And you think he's going to forget about that you need to pay the power bill? I mean, he sent his son, his only son, to die for you. And now, oh, man, man, the tailors, I, I forgot to provide lunch. No. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes a lot about this, about how silly it is that we worry. And it makes me feel silly. And I read him and very convicted because I worry. And you do too. He's a compassionate shepherd. 
He made all those, the billions of galaxies out of nothing. And I don't think it strained him. Jake and I were riding somewhere the other day. I forgot where we were. And Jake's heard me say this, and he said, you know, when God made this, Dad, he's just showing off what? And I said, man, he was. It was beautiful. The mountains. Wow. That God's not going to forget to meet our needs, is he? Of course, this doesn't mean that hard times aren't going to come in, into our lives. I mean, prosperity theology is grossly unbiblical, but Jesus is compassionate during our times of trial. That he will be with us, he will provide the grace to help us persevere through dark and difficult days. My family, we've been through some dark and difficult days lately, and man, we're no worse to wear. Our faith is stronger probably than it's ever been. Why? Because of his grace. It's nothing in us. Nothing in us. He's always faithful. He will, he will use those times also to strengthen your faith. That's what he, he's got to do that, right? He's got to do that. He strengthened our faith by showing us its faithfulness. And I can look back on 55 years of absolute faithfulness, not one second when he wasn't with me. I've never been alone. Never. Never walked alone. Even when I wasn't walking with him and I wasn't faithful with him when I was young, I can see his hand on me, his mercy. We think of common grace. That's a, a doctrine I think we need to recover in the church a little bit. Common grace. Grace that it's not special grace, saving grace. Common grace goes out to everyone. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Does he give grace to sinners? He does. Common grace. He provides all their needs. He provides what they have. He's compassionate in 10,000 ways to every single human being. The fact that they got up this morning, a sinner who rejects him or speaks against him, he gave them the breath to do that. It's not the devil. People say, well, the devil will do that. The devil's not omnipotent. He's pathetic. He's strong and pathetic if you're in Christ. No, God did that. I mean, most, most of the people here that he fed the 20,000, do you think most of these were his people? Most of them probably were not his people. They probably may have walked away and said, that was great. They wiped their mouth and said, I don't believe in God. They rejected him. It's clear. And yet he fed them. This is a vivid illustration of God's common grace, common to all people. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Oh, it's raining this morning and all those pagans who are home uh, uh, tending their land, they're going to get the rain this morning. It's going to water their lawn just like it does mine and yours. He has compassion even on those who remain his enemies even this very morning, the breath they have. That's how gracious and compassionate he is. So much more gracious and compassionate than we are. We tend to not want to be around those people, right? We can be really self-righteous. Second thing he tells us about God. Jesus draws, and Jesus is God, straight lines with crooked sticks. You've heard me say this before, but I'm a crooked stick, and so I think about this a lot. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He quenched Israel's thirst with water from not a fountain, not... A spigot, but a rock. A rock. He birthed the Israelite nation out of a barren womb in Sarah. He brought his son into the world through a young virgin woman. God confounds us. God's worked in every way. This is the way God works. Is God confounding you right now? You don't understand? Well, I don't either. And this is the way God works. He does it to bring glory to himself. I mean, look at his preachers. Paul calls us clay pots, and we are, 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure, this gospel treasure, in jars of clay, clay pots, 
so that the surpassing greatness, the surpassing power belongs to God to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. I quote that to myself every Sunday morning. You're going to work through a clay pot to bring your gospel to your people and build your church to show that though I am weak and I'm a clay pot, I'm just Walmart crockery at best, with apologies to Walmart crockery probably, to show that the surpassing power belongs to you and not to us. No power in me, all the power in him. He draws straight lines with crooked sticks. The mustard seed is the kingdom, and it's the greatest of all the plants, right? Third thing this tells us about God, and final things. We get toward the end here. Jesus is the bread of life. Come down from heaven. We'll see this in verses 32 to 35, 38 and 40. I'll read 32 to 35. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. There it is. I'm the bread of life. You got a picture of it in the old covenant and the bread from heaven. You think that's bread that fed you? I'm the true bread. That just pointed to me. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We're going to want to kill him and leave him here in a few minutes. Jesus said to him, them, I am the bread of life. One of the great I am statements. The seven I am statements. Famous I am statements from John's gospel. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Are you here today and you are hungry for something that will, you, the life, all the things in this life, all the blessings in this life will not fill you. And you're hungry. And you're thirsty. And you try to slake your thirst with everything this world has to offer and yet you remain thirsty. Jesus says, Come. Jesus says to you, come, come to me. You only have your appetite, your stomach filled, your thirst quenched in me because I am the bread of life. Jesus is here making a claim to deity. This is the point of the miracle. He is the bread of God sent down from heaven, sent by the Father as the divine Son. And Jesus has come to meet our deepest need, which is a transformed heart for all who believe, who work the work of God, and that is Faith, and faith is not a work, it's a gift of God, by the way. And of course, this comes to us, all of it, even faith by grace alone, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, even faith, he gives us the ability to believe. And once we've trusted in him to save us, we need him daily to grow, moment by moment to grow and mature us and sanctify us to make us more like Jesus. Colossians 1, 20 and 29, him we proclaim. We're a Christian church, truly, <laughs> Southern Baptist, we're a Christian church because we proclaim Him, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, Paul said, so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. That's why we're here this morning. If you're in Christ, we're here to present you mature in Christ. That's the task of the church. That is the task of proclamation. It's to make you, present you mature in Christ, to be a means of grace toward that end. And we have the manna from heaven. I mean, just like manna in the wilderness in Exodus 16, God supplies the people's needs. And they would have this in their minds. They said it here. I mean, God fed Israel with manna. This is the whole point. It's pointing forward to God. It was mercy then. It's even greater mercy now. 
This is a fulfillment. This is how a promise in the Old Testament or a typology becomes fulfilled in the New Testament. This is how we read our Bibles. There's, there's manna from heaven, and Jesus mentions manna from heaven here. That's, it was a type of Christ. It's how we put our Bibles together. That's a whole teaching session, a whole class, really and truly. It was a shadow in the Old Testament brought to bear, brought to reality in the New Testament. That's how, while we can read Exodus and our read through the Bible in a year and rejoice because we know we stand on this side of the cross, we have the fulfillment, the bread that comes down from heaven. We read John 6 along with those later chapters of Exodus and say, and rejoice and see that he has fed us into eternal life. He's the fulfillment of it. He's the true Moses. Verses 32, 33, truly I say to you, if it was not Moses who gave you bread, he mentions Moses because they're talking about Moses. He said Moses was the true prophet because here at the end, they said what? They said, oh, well, this is the prophet. This is the prophet sent from God right here in, in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by foot. No, I'm sorry, verse 14. When they saw the signs that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's coming to the world. They mean the one promised in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Moses said, a greater prophet like me will arise from among you. This is him. He said, I'm him. I'm, I'm him. He's the, the true manna. Verses 47 to 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. There it is again. And here it is. Here's where he's claiming this. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. They ate and they ate and they ate and they ate and they ate. They complained a lot and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. This, meaning himself, so that you may eat of it and never die. I am the living bread. I'm not just some inert loaf of bread. The living bread that came down from heaven, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'm going to go give my body break, broken the bread for the world. He's the true manna. So what we have here is the true Passover, the true Exodus. It's coming. All those things, see how they point to him? Fulfilled in him? And of course, we know Jesus is going to draw many to himself, but repel others. We read that earlier. He's going to, they grumbled about him. Verse 31 says, because he said, I'm the bread of life. They grumbled at the manna. Think about that. They fed, he fed a man in the Old Testament. Man, we're sick and tired of this manna. Can you not give us some meat? He sends the, the quail and he sends so much, he shoves it down their throat almost. And they grumble, though, and here they're grumbling again. We're inveterate grumblers, aren't we? Here's the bread of life, who has eternal life, and we grumble. They grumbled about the manner, you're grumbling again. He repels some. So he says, you've got to feed on me to have life. How do we do that? Here's where we close. Well, first we put our faith in Christ alone for salvation. We come to the Lord Jesus through his Son, for everyone, just the will of the Father, verse 40, everyone that looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. Rejoice if you have faith in Him. He's going to raise you up on the last day. You, are, you come to Christ and you died in Him. Think of Romans 6 here, and you will be raised in Him. You're in Him in His death and in Him in His resurrection. You died with Him, you'll be raised with Him. We put our faith in Him for salvation. That's what happens to us. If you're a Christian, you will fi never finally fall away because he will grant you the grace to persevere. John 6, 39, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You're saved, you're gonna, he's going to keep you saved. And we also 
put our faith in Christ, we also sit down and receive the word of the Lord. 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn infants, we long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. There's no salvation apart from his word. There's no growth. There's no maturity, no sanctification. I meet counsel people throughout the years. They'll say, I'm just not growing. Or they'll say, you know, I'm at church and I'm just not getting fed. And that is the biggest cop out I've ever heard in my life. That's what people say when they, they want to leave your church, but they don't really have a reason to leave. They say, I'm not being fed. Because my next question is this. So what are you doing Monday through Saturday to feed yourself? Because you're dependent on this hour, you're not going to grow spiritually. It's not going to happen. Any more than if you said, I'm going to eat lunch with you, Pastor Jeff, on Sunday, and I'm going to fast. I'm, going to, I'm not going to eat till next week. If you fasted, God might, might uh, see you through. But if you said, I'm just not going to eat again next week, what would happen? You'd be in pitiful shape when I saw you next week. You wouldn't sit through the sermon about bread. You'd be, <laughs> you'd be climbing the walls for bread, wouldn't you? We've got to be in the Word every day, every day of our lives. That's not a legalistic requirement. That's just how we grow. That's how we mature. And so when I ask people, so how's your devotional life? They'll say, yeah, boy, it's not good. I could have predicted that. I could have told you that. Because you're depending, depending on me and this sermon to get you through the week. I hope it's going to help. No, it's not going to do it, is it? Even just fellowship for a couple hours here? Got to be in the Word. That's the means of grace for us. We long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. That's what Peter said. That's the Word of the Lord. That's not my Word. Of course, we participate in the Lord's Supper, baptism, Lord's Supper. We come to the table and we're nourished. First Sunday of the month we do this. We'll do this, Lord willing, I guess next week. And we, we're nourished, we're strengthened. We commune with the Word through prayer. Paul said to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5. We, we used to sing in church, now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Let us tell him all about our troubles. He will hear our faintest cry and he'll answer by and by. That's a good song. There's good theology in that. We pray. We pray. Have you asked God, have you taken your troubles, have you taken your concerns to the Lord? Have you prayed for this church? Have you prayed for these elders? Have you prayed for these deacons? Have you prayed for your Sunday school teacher? Have you prayed? Have you prayed? We pray. We pray and we read God's Word and we're dependent on Him. That shows our dependence on Him moment by moment by moment. Not just once a day, but just we're moment by moment. We pray without ceasing. And we gather. We feed on Him by being faithful members of the body of Christ. We feed on Him together. I mean, the church is one of God's great means of grace. Because what do we do here? We, we preach the Word. We pray the Word. We sing the Word. We read the Word we encourage one another. We want you to leave here not discouraged and say, man, there weren't many people there today. No, be encouraged. You heard the word of God. You heard the word of the living God preached and taught and sung. And you got to spend time with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us not be gauging things the way the world gauges it. And I do that. I do the same thing you do. I'm, I'm preaching probably mostly to myself. As if we have to have a thousand people before we get in the mood to worship. If that's true, what's wrong with us? That's a very American way of thinking. Success. We succumb to this success syndrome, don't we? And say, well, God can never move through 20 people. What are we thinking? And yet we think that way, don't we? I'm guilty. Again, I know how I think. I'm very specific about that. I, go, I tend to think the same way. I'm an American. And man, I like big things. But we feed on him, don't we? Come and we feed on him. We don't have to have, I mean... 
it's like, you know, God told me one time that Akita, big ministry, this was my first surrender ministry, was having a big sound system. <laughs> I thought, big sound system, I'm not a rapper, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we don't have to have that, do we? Just this. Just this. Right here. And you. That's it. It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's all we've got to have. To feast on him. If we concern ourselves with this, we'll feast. I did a radio show of the person who believes that God speaks today verbally. Her whole ministry is built on this in England. And I'm a cessationist, so she wanted me to be a debating partner, so I'm happy to do that because I think that's grossly unbiblical and dangerous. God speaks today. And my point was, why, why, would you, why do you want that when you have this? He has spoken, and if you want to know what he said, you can flat know it by the word of God. You've got it. Read it. If you spend your life as much energy on this as you do that, you're going to be a big, tall, mature, strong Christian. Spend your time on that. I'm not sure what's going to happen to you. It's not good. Got to be honest. Beloved, will you feed on Christ today? When you leave here, will you feed on him? Will you just put this up and say, well, we did that for this week. See, if we do that, we're doing nothing more than the Pharisee or the, the Jews did here. Just put it up. And be done with it. We feed on him today because he is the bread come down from heaven. And he alone, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ alone, this Jesus alone will nourish you into eternal life. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in here, and we've been on it a long time, and I realize that. But I don't think I've even scratched the surface. Father, uh, give us grace to long after this pure spiritual milk that will grow us into eternal life. Give us, reorient our thinking, Lord, to know that it's you alone who nourishes us and strengthens us and that we need these means of grace desperately. Lord, make us desperate for you. Make us desperate for more of you and give us the strength and the vision to run to these means you have given us and find you there and to feast on you there and to be matured and grown and strengthened and nourished there. Father, we thank you for how you supply our needs. According to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus, you've been so good to us. Individually, Lord, you have been good to us. Here at this church, you've been good to us, Lord, and we praise you and thank you for that. God, give us grace to pursue Jesus, the bread of life this week, to feast on him and be nourished unto eternal life. In his name we pray, amen.